Welcome to Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan. I'm Dave James. In a moment, I'll have a discussion about proposed legislation in Ohio to allow sports betting with somebody who comes from the online and iGaming side of the issue. Toward the bottom of the hour, Scott DeMauro, president of the Ohio Education Association, talks about how public education is faring as the pandemic continues. And toward the end of the hour, I'll talk with a representative from AARP about the cost of prescription drugs. Some are astronomically high, referred to as specialty drugs, especially for seniors on Medicare. First up on Columbus Perspective, on the phone with me from Washington, John Pappas. He is the state advocacy director for IDEA Growth, IDEA standing for I-Development and Economic Association. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on the program. Thanks for talking to us. Uh, We're going to talk about sports betting in Ohio. First, tell us about IDEA Growth. What is your interest in Ohio's uh, online and, and sports betting industry? Our association is made up of over 30 uh, companies that are uh, integral to the online betting industry, not just sports betting, but also iGaming, which is available in states like Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and Michigan. Okay, so here in Ohio, it looked like maybe it was going to happen a year or two ago, and finally the uh, Senate passed it early this summer, and it's coming up in front of the House now this fall. And you've been following this closely in Ohio. I have been. I've been. I've been there pretty much every step of the way. Uh, I've had the, the good fortune of coming to Columbus a number of times, testifying, meeting with lawmakers. And like any complicated issue, it's an education process. Um, gambling is not necessarily the least of controversial issues, so it does take some time. There are a lot of interesting stakeholders uh, in the state and outside of the state that care about this. So it's kind of harmonizing all of those different. Um, those different interests to get to where we are today, and I'm feeling very good that uh, that we're going to have some some good news for uh, people in Ohio that want to uh, place a sports bet very soon. Now, it seems like last year when it ended up not getting final passage, that, that the biggest argument or, or debate about it was whether or not the Casino Control Commission or the Ohio Lottery Commission would oversee it. Is that still an important factor in how this is going to work out? Uh, I, I think that has been resolved. I think it's quite clear that the Casino Control Commission will be the ultimate regulator. Uh, there will be a role for the Lottery Gaming Commission. Most likely there are going to be some... Uh, ability for lottery retailers uh, to offer sports betting kind of on an in-person retail basis, kind of like as you would purchase a lottery ticket. But those are actually one of the issues that are trying to be worked out with the conference committee uh, right now as we speak. We know discussions are ongoing and have been ongoing for the last several weeks, and uh, those are some details that will hopefully get hashed out. Interestingly enough, I mean, I think a lot of attention is being paid to, you know, whether or not the lottery retailers will be able to offer this, who of the lottery retailers will be able to offer it. Uh, But the reality is for the state in terms of creating economic impact and revenue, uh, everything is about the online game and who gets to have the online mobile uh, sports betting because, as we've seen in nearly every state, 90%, 90%, up to 90% of wagers are placed online versus in a retail environment. 
Right, where somebody could just use their, their phone, their cell phone, to, to place a bet. And we, we talked with somebody representing the bowling centers of Ohio, and they acknowledged that, but said that, you know, the 5% or so that's left, they want to be able to use their Kino kiosks in businesses around Ohio, update the software so that they could be involved. Well, you know, honestly, our organization has no problem with that. I know that that's not something that is favored by some of the incumbent gaming interests, the racinos and casinos, uh, and those are fights that are kind of beyond what our interest is. Our interest is ensuring, like, a competitive mobile market for the state, and I think the good news is we're, we're headed in that direction, uh, and I think that's what we're going to see. And ultimately, if you're a taxpayer in Ohio, that's what you want to see, right, because that is what's going to create the most tax revenue for the state as a consumer. Um, you know, if you're interested in sports betting, uh, the convenience of being able to bet legally from your phone. I think that's a key distinction. Uh, when we talk about now, you know, hopefully there will be legal betting in Ohio. There's been betting, sports betting in Ohio for decades, whether it's a street corner bookie, uh, a guy in your fraternity house, or a you know somebody using um, a, a website based in Curacao or Antigua, uh, online betting and sports betting generally has been around in Ohio for a long time. Uh, what we're seeking to do is corral that unregulated marketplace, turn it into something that's safe and accountable, and uh, derive a lot of new tax revenues for the state. Talking with John Pappas, State Advocacy Director for Idea Growth. The version that came out of the Senate, do you expect the House to largely go with that, or do you think there will be changes and some haggling down the road? Oh, there's definitely going to be changes. Uh, the, the House had the opportunity to just rubber stamp the Senate bill when it, when it passed out of the Senate at the end of, or at the beginning of the summer, and they didn't. Uh, it was a very narrow window for them to act, but... I think ultimately they wanted to be deliberate, and that's why they've pushed everything to the fall. Um, and that's what's happening right now. A conference committee has been established. So uh, for those that are familiar, a conference committee is essentially a, a negotiating committee. So you have representatives from both the House and the Senate uh, that are looking at the bill, and uh, they're going through it and making changes. Uh, to it to reach what is ultimately going to be a compromised piece of legislation. Uh, I wish I could tell you right now what all those changes are going to be, but it's just not possible to know. And I think everyone's anxious to see what they release in the next uh, week or so. Once this gets passed, how long do you think it'll take to actually become operational? Just because of the the nature of uh, administrative procedure in Ohio, I would imagine it's going to take somewhere between six to eight months to actually get a market up and running because uh, what you're going to have to have happen first after a law is signed, uh, you're going to have to go through a rulemaking process. And that is at least a six-month to eight-month process, as I understand it, in Ohio. So I think best-case scenario, uh, if a bill gets signed into law sometime in November or December, that we're looking at uh, a launch of the market for the start of the NFL season in 2022, uh, which, is, which would be great. Uh, we've already seen uh, what's happened in states like Arizona uh, that just launched right ahead of the NFL season. Uh, it's been a tremendous amount of participation and interest from consumers. It seems like it was kind of late end of the thing while the Senate was working on this that 
Ohio's pro sports teams formed a coalition and, and became a voice in this. Uh, is that the case, and what does it mean? Um, they, they, they were. Um, the sports teams were not included in previous bills, uh, in previous years. Um, the sports teams have really kind of changed their tunes uh, on, on sports betting, and um, they are becoming now active participants in the industry. While they're not going to be booking the bets themselves, they want to have partnership opportunities with online sports books and with retail sports books um, because they know that's where you know consumers are coming and they uh, are even more engaged with the events when they have a little skin in the game. Uh, that's just the reality of it. People may not be interested in a Thursday night football game between the Jacksonville Jaguars and the Tennessee Titans. Um, but if you have a twenty dollar bet on it, you may you may watch it a little bit more. So the sports teams have recognized that there is value for supporting sports betting, and this has been a trend we've seen in a number of other states where the sports teams themselves uh, go ahead and get the license, and then they subcontract with somebody else to run all the operations. So they hold the license, um, but you know they work with a third party to actually run the risk and and manage the odds and provide services to consumers. So it's not unusual. That's what's happened in Arizona, Maryland, uh, Illinois. Uh, other states have done this, and I, I think that's going to be a trend moving forward. So does that mean then that you would be able to bet at kiosks in the sports venues and the stadiums and arenas and and or also go to clevelandbrowns.com and place a bet through that website? Probably not through clevelandbrowns.com. Uh, what would likely happen is that the Cleveland Browns, that sports team, will partner with a um, with a sports book. Um, you know, I can just draw out any name. Uh, let's say it's Bet365 or DraftKings or someone like that. And so it would be uh, maybe there would be a co-branded website between the two, but I don't think they would use their traditional Cleveland browns.com as a gambling site that would still remain you know a news site information site buy tickets for games uh they may have links back to the gambling site but it wouldn't be that site itself but yes you are correct uh the bills would enable them to have a retail sports book uh, again we're seeing that al- already in in places i live here in washington dc uh and there are two sports books uh at um, at, at various stadiums here where the Nationals uh, play. Uh, MGM has a sports book there. And where, um, where the Wizards and Capitals play, uh, William Hill Caesars has a sports book there. And they're beautiful. Uh, they're, really, they're really built to look kind of like more like a sports bar uh, and have that kind of a sports bar atmosphere. But at the same time, you're able to bet at kiosks. They have walk-up windows. Uh, so you can do either, you know, it's kind of that Vegas experience for sports betting. It's interesting because, you know, here in Ohio and Cincinnati, we've got Pete Rose, who's banned from baseball for gambling. And now we're going to have the sports teams who are actually uh, playing a role in it. It'll be interesting when, when Pete Rose is the one placing the first bet at, at, at the, <laughs> the sports book at the Cincinnati Red Stadium. <laughs> Does any of this concern you, though, about the integrity of the game? And I'm thinking maybe more concern about college football. You know, if you get 10 or 12 or 15 players on a team, could be a major team or not, who, 
you know, decide they want to throw a game because they're betting on the side. Isn't that a possibility to happen? Well, that's a possibility in, in today in the unregulated market, and I think it's actually more concerning in an unregulated market than it would be uh, through regulation. Uh, every time a sports betting scandal, whether it's a, prop, uh, a professional or uh, amateur athlete like college sports, they've always been uncovered by the legal sports book who recognize some um, anomalies with the betting. Uh, that you know, there's unusual betting happening on a certain event, and they'll halt trading on that, and they'll investigate, and, and that's how things are are discovered. So, there are a number of integrity policies in place that will help ensure that that's not an issue. Um, you know, I think certainly there is going to be a lot of education uh, that needs to go on with on college campuses with students and athletes, but the Legal betting doesn't make it more of uh, of a integrity concern. I think, you know, if anything, the legal betting will will put stronger controls in place to ensure that those those integrity concerns don't come to light. Talking with John Pappas from Idea Growth, he's uh, the state advocacy director and has testified on Ohio's legislation. As we mentioned, it's the it's the uh, the online the phone betting betting through your phone that's going to be the big deal. This has been going on in neighboring states and like uh, for instance Indiana. You have to actually physically be in Indiana in order to do this online, which is pretty interesting technology. Yeah, so that's uh, geofencing technology. In fact, one of the kind of the prime providers of that technology is a company called GeoComply, and they are members of our association. So not just the operators, not just the, the companies that you see that are, that are providing the product, but all the technology that, that supports those products. So, yeah, the geofencing technology is really uh, incredible. Uh, not only can it um, accurately uh, identify where you are uh, on, a, on your mobile device or your PC, uh, it also makes sure that you're not spoofing your location. I know a lot of people use a VPN. Uh, they're using those right now to either illegally stream television shows or Netflix or something like that or watch uh, sporting events. Uh, the sophistication of this technology is pretty incredible where they can detect if you're using one of those devices and ensure that you turn that off before you can wager because you cannot risk the ability of people from outside of the state placing a bet. Uh, you'd be in violation of state law. You'd be in violation of federal law. So the industry takes that very seriously because no operator wants to be uh, non-compliant with uh, the Federal Wire Act or any state law that says that you cannot place a bet across state lines. And I guess uh, as all the neighboring states are involved in doing this. Determining where the bet is placed is important when you determine where the revenue goes and how states share in that. Exactly, exactly. There may come a day when bets can be placed across state lines, and I think there will still be a need for geolocation technology to ensure that the states are getting the revenue that they need. Uh, but yes, I think that's definitely the case. GeoComply has uh, presented testimony, in fact, in Ohio where they show the heat maps of where betting is taking place in Michigan and in Indiana, and it's right near the border. Uh, There's a lot of people coming over from Ohio and placing bets. Interesting. What does this mean economically for Ohio? Um, You know, it depends who you ask. Uh, There was a study put out at the beginning of the year by 
the Legislative Services Commission or committee there that estimates somewhere between 25 and $30 million in new tax revenue to the state. I think that's a very conservative estimate based on what we've seen uh, of the market elsewhere uh, in other states. So I think, you know, Ohio in a mature market, which is going to take a couple years to mature, uh, I, I think, you know, by 2024, let's say if the bill gets passed this year, they have 2023 uh, behind them. I think by 2024, the state can look up to $50 million in new tax dollars every year from this activity. Just a couple of minutes to go here with John Pappas. He's with uh, Idea Growth. It stands for iDevelopment and Economic Association, which has an interest in the online and iGaming aspect of sports betting in Ohio. He's the state advocacy director. Is there anything about this legislation in Ohio that you don't like? Um, well, you know, it's, it's, it's nothing that we don't like. You know, I think every state is going to approach this differently, and it really depends on what the, who the stakeholders are already in the state. You know, so in, in Ohio, there are clear stakeholders, right? You have casinos and you have uh, racinos, and, and they believe they should have the opportunity to, to offer this. And and, it, and at one point, they were seeking exclusivity of it. And, and I think the bill has actually improved dramatically over the course of the last three years that it's been debated, where it went from something being offered exclusively to casinos and racinos to something now that is going to be more broadly uh, more broad access uh, when you include the, the teams, where you include, you know, if you can include bars and taverns and things like that. I, I think limiting the market is always um, something that, you know, we, we, we're always fighting against in, in a variety of states where people see a, a pot of the pie and they say, well, if there's this much pie, we want to get all of it. And the reality is the bigger you grow the pie, the bigger the, there is for everybody. So uh, we're, we're always a, an advocate for competitive markets, and we're very pleased that we think Ohio is going to be a very competitive market. I think that's, uh, you know, when in talking, I mentioned the bowling centers. Their take on it was that, you know, it was back in the 70s when the Ohio lottery began that it was the mom and pop shops that really helped the lottery grow. And, and then with the Kino machines and all that, all the local bars and everything. And since it is such a small cut of the pie, since most of it will be mobile gambling, they feel like they shouldn't be left out of it. Yeah, again, you know, those are going to be decisions made beyond my pay grade. Um, and I'm hoping that that, you know, whatever those decisions are, don't hold up the bill. Uh, are, are, you know, for the state itself, like, it would be a shame to uh, submarine a bill because of this retail issue, um, because, quite frankly, as you've noted and, and as they acknowledge, the revenue from this is really insignificant for the state. So from a public policy and what, what is in the best interest of the state, um, getting a bill that maximizes revenue, I think, is, is the best thing they ought to be focusing on. And it seems like in the House, you know, where you've got 99 members, mo- many of them coming from rural areas, that maybe it would be a, a bigger deal to the House than it was the Senate. Certainly, and I, I think that's why you're seeing, you know, seeing the House wanting to make changes, right? They weren't just simply going to rubber stamp the, the, the Senate the Senate bill because I think they felt like the need, more needed to be done to address this issue, and uh, it'll be interesting to see how that, how that all shakes out. And real quick, John, uh, what about the moral issues of this, uh, you know, or, or, you know, people with problem gambling and any of those sort of issues? Well, uh, the problem 
gambling issue is a real one, and, and, it, and it's significant. It's something our organization takes very seriously. And in fact, we we require that our members abide by you know some responsible gaming pillars. Um, uh, you know, the the interesting thing about on, particularly on the online side is the ability to control and manage behaviors far better than you could even in a brick and mortar environment. So I think there are some distinct advantages to, to mobile betting that you may not have. I think people might think, oh, well, it's in your pocket. You can do it all the time. But the reality is there's ability to set limits uh, online. There's ability to um, have, whether it's deposit limits or loss limits or bet limits, time limits, all of those things are, are possible which aren't really possible in, in the brick-and-mortar environment. And then there's the ability to exclude entirely and have self-exclusion. We think more needs to be done on the self-exclusion side of things. Uh, it would be great to have a system where if you're a player who recognizes you have a problem and you exclude from one site, that you are thereby excluded from all the websites uh, that are legal. Uh, and not only the websites, but also it would, it would overlap into the retail land-based side. Uh, I think technology is going to be the major driver to helping responsible gaming, and we look forward to a lot more innovation there. Uh, the good news is the, the bill in Ohio does provide for some funding for responsible gaming uh, prevention and uh, or treatment and awareness. That's a great thing, and, and I hope there'll be even more money invested in that as this market uh, grows. Talking with John Pappas, he's the state advocacy director for Idea Growth. Anything else you'd like to add? No, uh, I think we've covered a lot of great topics. Um, you know, it's really kind of a wait and see game. Uh, we're, we're we're very optimistic. Uh, I think a lot of time and effort has been put placed on Ohio. People recognize it as a very important state. Uh, if you look at a map of states with sports betting. Uh, Ohio is kind of that glaring state right in the middle between the Midwest and the and the Mid-Atlantic and Northeast where there isn't legal sports betting. It's kind of the, the piece of the puzzle that's yet to be filled in, and uh, we're excited to have it filled in hopefully sooner than later. The reality is right now anyone in Ohio can place a sports bet today if they want to. They're just going to place it on a site that has no accountability, none of the responsible gaming measures, uh, and that are based you know, in a, in a far-off land, uh, and we think it's far better for the consumer if they're able to do that on licensed legal sites that have the approval of the state. John, is there any uh, website that you recommend folks go to for more information about all this? Well, certainly I would recommend you visiting the Idea Growth website, and that's ideagrowth.org. Uh, ideagrowth.org, you can learn a little bit more about our organization. We actually have some resources on there about responsible gaming, uh, studies that we've conducted on the economic impact of, of sports betting and, and internet gaming generally. Um, and so there's a lot of great resources there. Uh, I, you know, I'd encourage you to you know, read the local news. Uh, there's a lot of great reporting going on, uh, listening to programs like this, getting information. And ultimately, if you care about this issue, uh, making sure that your lawmakers know about it, um, uh, contacting your state and local uh, representatives and showing them to support legislation to bring legal sports betting to the state of Ohio. John Pappas, State Advocacy Director for Idea Growth. Uh, thanks so much for your time and the information today. Happy to provide it, and thank you for having me on. 
How do you know if you or a loved one is at risk of problem gambling? By knowing the signs, such as borrowing money, hiding unpaid debts, bragging about wins, or just plain irritability. Sound familiar? Get Set Before You Bet is Ohio's initiative to help keep gambling safe and responsible for everyone. How does it work? Just visit BeforeYouBet.org to learn more and take the responsible gambling quiz. Together, we can keep gambling safe and responsible in Ohio. This message brought to you by Ohio for Responsible Gambling. Columbus Perspective is a public affairs presentation of WBNS Radio. The opinions expressed on this program are those of its guests and do not necessarily reflect those of WBNS Radio, its staff, management, or sponsors. Crispy, faded, lit, baked, toasty, stoned, blazed, zooted. When you're high... There are a lot of ways to say it, but there's only one thing you need to remember. Driving under the influence of marijuana is illegal everywhere. If you feel different, you drive different. Brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. This is Jim at a party. Dude, pass it. Hi there. This is Jim making nachos. Hi there. This is Jim watching his favorite horror movie. Oh, yeah, definitely high there. And this is Jim driving his car. Dude, not high there. Jim's making good decisions and not getting behind the wheel when he's high because he knows that if you feel different, you drive different. A message brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. Hey, this is Grace Gostet. I'm a singer-songwriter, and like many, I've been traumatized by years of bullying. You're ugly. You're stupid. You're gay. You're worthless. Bullying causes real harm and can result in severe long-term depression, anxiety, addiction, and even self-harm. I created the Black Box Project for anyone who has ever felt different for any reason. Go to theblackboxproject.org to help you take the first step to healing. You are not alone. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Hi, this is Dave James. Joining me on the phone, we talk to him uh, frequently. It's Scott DeMauro, who is the president of the Ohio Education Association. How are you? I'm doing well, Dave. How are you doing? I'm good. Thanks for talking to us. How many teachers uh, are represented by the OEA, and and who else do you represent? Yeah, so OEA represents 120,000 people across the state of Ohio. Uh, We uh, have pre-K through 12 classroom teachers, uh, as well as other professionals who work in schools, uh, school psychologists and counselors and nurses uh, and social workers uh, and education support professionals like bus drivers and school secretaries and cafeteria workers and custodians, uh, all the adults who work in our schools uh, to really set up opportunities and uh, the environment for successful student learning. We also represent a number of higher education faculty and staff Uh, at about a dozen campuses around the state. So we are a very diverse uh, group of educators. Uh, We have a presence in all 88 counties across the state of Ohio. We're the largest labor union in the state of Ohio. Uh, We're into uh, another year of the pandemic with Ohio's school year. Uh, This one perhaps more manageable in some ways and maybe not in others, it seems like. It's been been a a tough year. I mean, I, I think you know, so many of us were uh, coming out of last school year when 
you know, we had to go back and forth between remote and in-person instruction. Uh, but by the time we got to the end of the school year, things seemed to be really looking up with the decline in case numbers, uh, with our educators across the state being vaccinated. Uh, and I think there was an expectation that, that this year was just going to be, you know, a whole lot better. This is going to be our first normal year uh, in a little while. Uh, and then, you know, the Delta variant really wreaked havoc. And we saw as the school year was starting uh, that case numbers were going back up again. And, and in some ways, worse than before, it was young people that were being hit the hardest. You know, uh, pediatric ICU units. ICU units were being, uh, you know, overrun. And, um, you know, there's just a real concern about how do we keep our students safe? Uh, and so, you know, understandably, a lot of districts uh, made the wise choice to say, hey, we really want to keep schools open for in-person instruction. We know that the science is clear that, that masks uh, give us the best way to do that, uh, at least until we have everybody vaccinated. And, uh, and then we've seen these just um, really contentious uh, fights happening all across the state, I think fueled by a lot of disinformation uh, over what it takes to, to keep our schools safe. So, so teachers have really felt caught in the crossfire of that. Uh, and then you layer on top of that uh, the reality of staff shortages, uh, you know, the, the um, economy right now and with, with a lot of people still reluctant to, to be in settings where they're going to be exposed to a lot of people on a daily basis um, has led to critical shortages of substitute teachers, uh, of school bus drivers, of cafeteria workers, uh, and other people who work in our schools. And so all of that's combined to really create a very stressful situation for educators across the, the state. Now that said, uh, I never cease to be amazed by the heroicism of our members, uh, the fact that through all different kinds of difficulties, people are focused on doing all they can to make sure that learning is continuing and, and that students not just are give, given the support they need to be successful academically, but also support for their social and emotional needs as well, which is so critical during these times. So with all these disruptions, at the beginning of the school year, a lot of districts started in class or a hybrid, and then they pulled back to all virtual for a short time. What is the general situation in Ohio right now in, in those aspects? Well, every district in the state is uh, providing in-person instruction uh, to students on a daily basis. Now, some schools provide a virtual option uh, to students, um, but for the most part, uh, schools are operating uh, as they did before the pandemic uh, with the vast majority of students attending classes uh, in person every day. What sometimes will throw a wrinkle into that is if you have an outbreak of COVID uh, where you have a significant number of students uh, who contract the disease, uh, who are directly exposed and therefore have to be quarantined, or if you have a group of staff uh, who are affected by an outbreak, uh, then we've seen schools across the state that have had to pivot uh, temporarily to remote instruction calamity days and basically shut down their schools uh, for a limited period of time. What we're finding as we monitor those situations is that in almost every case, districts that have had to shift to remote learning uh, have done that 
in places where they're not requiring masks. Uh, you know, districts that are requiring masks, and the majority of our students across the state are in those schools right now, uh, have done a much better job managing the spread of COVID, at least inside the schools. This week, the Columbus Dispatch said that out of 609 public school districts, 250 or 56 percent are requiring masks. And that's been a contentious issue at the state house as well. And now it looks like the house is pulling back on trying to uh, drop mask mandates. Yeah, we're very relieved to see that the house has uh, stepped back and the Senate has stepped back from uh, weighing into this issue and, and not going where some other states have gone. Uh, in taking tools away from local school districts that are necessary to keep schools open and keep students safe. So uh, it seems that um, there's not going to be legislation that uh, will prevent mask requirements. Uh, at the same time, the governor has you know, been unwilling to impose a mask requirement like we saw last year. I think if, if that had been in place, uh, we probably would have seen far less disruption than we have. Um, and so the, the, you know, the issues have really been uh, debated and decided at the local level. Uh, I, I really uh, have a lot of empathy for superintendents and for members of local school boards who have to agonize over these decisions and do, it, uh, do what they believe is right while also dealing with a lot of political pressure uh, within the communities and oftentimes political pressure that comes from outside their communities. Um, but... You know, I think, uh, you know, most kids in, in Ohio uh, are in a situation where uh, they do have that level of protection, and I think that's important. You mentioned the substitute teacher shortage and the bus driver shortage. Do you think this is temporary, or is this a systemic thing going forward because of uh, maybe how the pandemic has changed people's mindset about work? Yeah, the pandemic has certainly exacerbated a lot of problems that we have, but we have been concerned about a decline in the number of people going into education as a profession going back at least 15 years. Uh, if you look at the number of students choosing education as a major, um, you know, that number is about half of what it was about 15 years ago. And there are a number of things that drive that. One is, uh, you know, a feeling that People can find more lucrative ways uh, to make a living than uh, by working in education. Uh, and so, you know, a lot of our talented people just, just pursue other careers because there's just the perception that there's not a lot of money to be made in education. Uh, but I think even deeper than that, you know, the way our education policy has put so much attention on standardized test scores and preparing kids for tests and narrowing the focus of our work rather than really unleashing teachers uh, to achieve their full creative potential by instilling in their students their imagination and curiosity and desire to learn. I think that has had a negative impact as well. Uh, you know, young people today going into college and coming out of college uh, have only ever known a school system where testing has been uh, a primary focus. And I think until we get away from that, until we really invest in our schools uh, in the way that we need to do, and also have systems in place to provide uh, support, uh, then I think you know we're gonna continue to see this problem. The substitute teacher shortage is, is kind of the tip of the iceberg in some ways, because a lot of times you know, we rely on people that are 
in the job market for education, but maybe not currently working as teachers uh, to serve as substitutes. Uh, and then one of the things that's made the, where the pandemic has had an impact is that oftentimes we have retired teachers or people that are maybe retired from another career and then they choose to, uh, to substitute on a temporary basis. Uh, we've been a lot more reluctant to go into school settings because of the pandemic. Talking with Scott DeMauro, president of the Ohio Education Association. Well, the standards, the report cards, uh, the new round came out just in the last week or two, and nobody was really happy about any of it. It's just such an odd situation right now, even trying to evaluate that stuff, it seems like. Yeah, it's interesting looking at the report cards. For one, I will say that we appreciate the fact that the legislature uh, did have the foresight and listened to the voices of educators uh, by suspending a lot of test requirements over the course of the last two years. And as a result, uh, suspending summative grades uh, for report cards. There just isn't enough data to, to be able to assign rating. And on top of that, uh, we've been working really hard and we got legislation passed over the summer to completely overhaul the school report cards. So we're not gonna see ADAF letter grades uh, moving forward, uh, but that new report card is not gonna go into effect until next year. So in the meantime, we're looking at the data that we have and, and you know, no surprise to anybody that the pandemic uh, has disrupted learning. Uh, we've seen uh, a decline in the uh, performance index in, in most places, and that's, that's kind of a, a summary of all the uh, standardized test scores. We've also seen an increase in uh, chronic absenteeism. What's interesting when you dig into the numbers a little bit more deeply, though, is that uh, local public schools have fared far better uh, than charter schools in all of this. Uh, the decline in test scores in charter schools has been uh, much greater, about two and a half times greater than the decline in test scores among uh, local public schools. Uh, and chronic absenteeism in charter schools across the board uh, is approached 50%. I think it was 44% last year. Uh, so, you know, there, there are some people that, that think about accountability and, and got, want to make sure that, that schools are doing the right thing, which is absolutely important to look at. Uh, but the alternative and the answer isn't to deprive public schools of resources by sending more money to charter schools uh, or issuing government handouts in the form of subsidies for private school tuition vouchers. Uh, the, the answer is to make sure that schools have the resources that they need in order to serve all their students. Good news there is that the federal government has stepped up through the American Rescue Plan. Uh, we have uh, federal dollars that are coming into the state of Ohio that are helping to address some of the acute needs of our students that have been uh, really exposed by the pandemic. Uh, but we need the legislature also to step up and, and really commit to a long-term funding strategy that addresses the needs of every single student, regardless of their race or class or family background, uh, to make sure that every single child in this state has what they need for a bright future. Well, that federal money you're talking about, it was, uh, I think, $1.2 or $1.3 billion just for Cleveland, Columbus, and Cincinnati, and $6 billion statewide. Is that about right? Yeah, it's coming in several different phases. Uh, I believe that $6 billion is an aggregate total the American Rescue Plan uh, had about four and a half billion dollars, so that was the largest, the largest chunk, and that was passed by Congress, signed by President Biden earlier this year. But 
but yeah, there there are resources and and some some of the districts are doing I think a really phenomenal job investing in smaller classes, hiring more counselors, uh, doing what they can to hire nurses. By the way, I just want to make a point: our school nurses uh, and our clinic aides who work in our schools uh, are among. Uh, the most dedicated but also overworked and overwhelmed people right now because not only are they, are they doing the normal work that they've always done in terms of, of uh, supporting students and, and, you know, helping, you know, kids when they're sick and, and uh, you know, keeping track of, of, you know, regular immunizations and things like that, uh, but the time that, that's being spent on contact tracing uh, and doing extra mitigations in order to keep school safe school safe has has been uh really incredible um and and fortunately though there's been some resources in some places to be able to to, uh, hire more nurses so the resources are there uh it's up to districts to engage with teachers engage with their communities to come up with really solid plans for how to use those resources most effectively to meet the needs of students um, in some cases, it's investing in technology. It may be investing investing in new HVAC systems so that we really have better air ventilation and you're less likely to transmit diseases uh, in our school buildings. Um, you know, a whole range of things. Uh, but, you know, again, the good news is the federal government's listened and, and investing. And we're hoping the federal government, through the Build Back Better plan, uh, is really going to make a commitment to uh, long-term infrastructure in our schools as well. I'm wondering if, you know, people in some communities might be concerned about the way real estate values have skyrocketed, property taxes are going to be going up in the next couple of years, and are there ways for school districts to spend that money in ways that will help suppress uh, property tax increases down the road? I think that's it's, it's worth looking at, but, but it's important for everybody to remember that under Ohio law, uh, when a community passes a property tax levy, uh, they're passing a levy for a certain amount of money, and then as property tax or as property values rise over time, the effective millage of that levy goes down. Uh, so the district's not able to capture more property tax revenue just because property values are going up. Uh, so, uh, you know, certainly uh, people ought to be paying attention to that, but it doesn't change the fact that, you know, there are limitations on how uh, property tax revenue can grow, um, and, you know, there's still going to be a need to continue going back to voters for for levies, uh, even with higher property values because of those limitations in Ohio law. Talking with Scott DeMauro, president of the Ohio Education Association. Just a couple of minutes to go here. I did want to touch real quick. You mentioned early on about how politics and contentious issues have crept into, you know, say, school board meetings and and things like that, and has also perhaps resulted in more people running for school board on some of these wedge issues, which concerns you. Yeah, that's that's right. You know, we see more people running for school board than than ever before, at least in in recent memory. Uh, The fact that people want to get involved and engaged in that way is, is good. I think it's good for democracy for people to have choices. The concerning issue is that in a lot of places, uh, people are running for school board uh, on an agenda that is coming from national groups. It's all about uh, running on wedge issues, wedge issues related to concerns about 
uh, the pandemic and, and a lot of disinformation about what it takes to keep schools safe, uh, but also wedge issues related to race. Um, you know, there has been, uh, you know, promoted uh, across the country uh, a whole series of, of bills that have been introduced in legislatures uh, and also a lot of action happening in, in local communities uh, that is really stoked by fear uh, and fear of, of things that just simply aren't happening in our schools uh, regarding race and, and the curriculum. The reality is, is that we're committed to doing all we can to make sure we're, we're teaching the standards that have been adopted by the state, uh, teaching our board-adopted curriculums, but also being intentional about addressing the needs of all of our students. Uh, there are inequities in the system, just like there are inequity, equities in, in society. And we have an obligation of teaching our students the truth, uh, of, of really being committed to honesty and education. You know, I, I, I'm a social studies teacher. Uh, I've been in education for 30 years. It's always been critical for me to instill in my students uh, the critical thinking and problem-solving, decision-making skills that they need to be effective citizens in our democracy. Uh, we shouldn't be whitewashing our history. We shouldn't be censoring teachers. We shouldn't be limiting the freedom of our students to learn. Because as educators, you know, our job is to instill our, in our students, you know, that imagination, that creativity, but also uh, to be lifelong learners and to learn from mistakes so that they can uh, help create a brighter future for all of us. Uh, that's what's at stake in these local school board races. In a lot of cases, uh, that's what's at stake in, in, you know, discussions that are happening at the state level. Uh, and uh, our educators are engaged in those conversations. Local control is a beautiful thing in public education. But if we get into a hard, locked-down, 50-50, drag-out fight about everything like we're getting to with national politics, that's going to be that's frightening to think about. It is. It is. And, and again, you've got uh, radical national agendas that are being inserted into, uh, you know, school board issues. Uh, you know, when people are, are running for school board and serve on the school board, their focus should be on doing what's best for kids, on meeting the needs of the whole child, on, on supporting uh, their teachers, uh, on hiring the best superintendent and treasurer that they can, on thinking long term strategically about uh, about their facilities and about their programs um, and not, you know, honing in on narrow issues uh, that are driven by ideological agendas coming from the outside. Um, and I, I know we've got a lot of really good people. I know there are some really talented school board people who have really felt besieged uh, with what's been going on and some good people have chosen not to run for re-election. Um, and I also know that, that our members, you know, school employees in districts, have really felt caught in the crossfire. And they, and they feel like they're caught in the crossfire of a culture war that they didn't create. Um, so we'll see what happens. A lot of this is tied to uh, national political calculations going into 2022 and 2024. Uh, and so, you know, we're encouraging our members and we're encouraging, you know, parents and community people to just pay attention, to be educated on the issues. Uh, and most importantly, to get out and vote and make their voices heard uh, so that, you know, we are electing people that really have students' interests at heart. Scott DeMauro, President, Ohio Education Association. Anything else you'd like to add? You know, I just uh, want to reiterate again how proud I am of the teachers and education support professionals 
and people who work in our public schools all across the state. Uh, the circumstances have never been more challenging, but I know what drives people and what keeps people going is that they're really committed to student success. And this opportunity to be connected with kids in the classroom, uh, you know, has been really important. Uh, it, was, it was tough uh, having to work in an environment where, you know, you lost touch in some cases with kids. And, and so we're connecting with more kids now. As always, our educators are making a difference. And I just, I just want to say uh, how deeply proud I am to be uh, connected with them and to be part of the Ohio Education Association, which we're coming up on our 175th anniversary. We wow. have been advocating for our public schools, for our educators, for, and for our students for 175 years. And, uh, you know, who, who would have thought back in 1847 uh, that we'd be dealing with the kinds of issues that we are today, but I am so proud of our members. Wow, that's great. Uh, Scott, a website where folks can find out more about the organization? You find out a lot more about OEA at our website, which is ohea.org. All right, Scott DeMauro, President, OEA. Thanks so much for your time today. Thanks, Dave. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Hello, I'm Todd Markowitz, Vice President and General Manager of Radio Ohio, which owns 97.1 The Fan. We're an equal opportunity employer dedicated to providing broad outreach efforts regarding job vacancies within our company. We seek the help of local organizations in referring qualified applicants. Organizations that wish to receive our vacancy information should send their request to the attention of Human Resources, Radio Ohio, 770 Twin Rivers Drive, Columbus, 43215. If you'd like to view our current job openings, please visit our website at 971thefan.com and Thanks for listening. What is dedication? The thing that drives me every day as a dad is Dariana. We call him uh, Day Day for short. Every day he's hungry for something, whether it's attention, affection, knowledge. And there's this huge responsibility in making sure that when he's no longer under my wing, that he's a good person. I think the advice I would give is you don't need to know all the answers. The craziest thing was believing that your dad knew everything. So as a dad, you felt like you had to know everything. You had to get everything right. It's okay to make mistakes. As long as it's coming from love, then, you know, it kind of starts to work itself out. I want him to be able to sit back one day and go, we worked together, we did a good job. That's dedication. Find out more at fatherhood.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Matthew. Huh? Oh, sorry. It's okay. I just need you to listen to me. I know that a lot of times, Mom, it might not seem like I'm listening to you, but I am. I hear you. And what you say really does matter to me. I mean, let's be honest. No kid likes rules, but I get why we have them. I hear you, and I know it's because you care. All the talks we've had over the years, including what you've told me about not using alcohol and other drugs, they stick with me. And believe it or not, they really do make a difference, especially at times that matter most. Hey, want a drink? No, thanks. I'm good. So thank you, Dad, for talking and preparing me for what's ahead. Thanks, Mom, for never giving up and always being my biggest fan. Thank you for letting me know what you expect so I can try to meet your expectations. Thank you for talking. For more information about talking with your kids about underage use of alcohol and other drugs, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Hi, this is Dave James. Joining me on the phone is Lee Purvis, who is the Director of Healthcare Costs and Access for AARP. How are you? 
Good morning. How are you? Good. Thanks for talking to us. We're going to talk about prescription drug prices, especially specialty drug prices. What are those? Specialty drugs don't really have a set definition, but they're drugs that typically require special administration, so maybe they're injected, or special handling, so they're maybe refrigerated. Um, And they're used to treat conditions like cancer and multiple sclerosis and rheumatoid arthritis. But probably their most defining characteristic is definitely their price. They are typically among the most expensive drugs on the market. Um, AARP actually took a look at the prices of 180 specialty drugs, and we found that the average annual cost for just one specialty drug is around $84,000 per year. Wow. So sometimes we see these commercials now on TV where people are talking about how a single pill is thousands of dollars for treatment of cancer and, and other diseases. That is absolutely the case. We really are seeing kind of a race to the top when it comes to prescription drug prices. Um, We used to get really upset about drugs that cost $10,000 per year, and we're now seeing drugs coming on the market with price tags in the millions. Um, So there's definitely been a huge escalation in the prices of prescription drugs, and that's having a real impact on patients. So if somebody, uh, you know, whether it's somebody on Medicare or somebody who has uh, private insurance, are they covered for, for these kind of drugs? They are covered. Um, Unfortunately, they tend to come with some really high cost sharing. So we hear about some Medicare beneficiaries who are on incredibly expensive drugs who are facing cost sharing that exceeds $10,000 per year. And when you think about the fact that the median income for Medicare beneficiaries is around $30,000 per year, that is completely unsustainable. Um, I don't think anyone, regardless of income, could afford those types of costs, but we really are hearing about Medicare beneficiaries who are struggling. Obamacare uh, years ago at least uh, lifted caps on the cost that people could end up paying over a lifetime, right? It did for private insurance. There are out-of-pocket maximums. Unfortunately, that doesn't actually exist under Medicare Part D. Um, There is an out-of-pocket limit, but it's not a hard out-of-pocket limit. And that's why we hear about those beneficiaries who are paying tens of thousands of dollars per year, because unlike under private insurance, they don't have a hard cap. And that is causing, again, those incredibly high costs for them. So are these uh, greedy examples by the pharmaceutical companies or are these expensive drugs? Drug companies will definitely tell you that it's related to the cost associated with development. Um, But there is kind of a unique phenomenon in the United States in the sense that drug companies really are free to set their prices at what the market will bear, which unfortunately is often kind of a sweet spot between maximizing their revenue and making everyone really angry. And so we see these incredibly high prices in the United States, and it's because we've been given drug companies the freedom to price their products pretty much wherever they want. Is there anything being done in, uh, you know, in, on the policy level in Washington to try to straighten this out? Absolutely. This is an issue that is really resonating with policymakers, probably because it has such widespread bipartisan public support. Um, there are very few issues that have such incredible support uh, among the public, around 90% of every survey that we've seen. So we're seeing a lot of activity at the state and the federal level. At the federal level, there's actually legislation moving that does three really important things that AARP strongly supports, which are allowing Medicare to negotiate prices on behalf of its beneficiaries, creating that hard out-of-pocket cap under Medicare Part D to help limit costs for beneficiaries, and then penalizing drug companies that increase their prices faster than inflation, which our reports have shown is something that unfortunately happens year after year. Well, a few years ago, Martin Shkreli, the uh, the pharmaceutical bro, as they, as they called him, ended up, uh, he still is in prison after uh, 
jacking up the prices of some prescription drugs. He got a lot of attention for that, but I think he actually was convicted of securities fraud, you know, unrelated to the drug prices. But it still got a lot of attention and a lot of criticism. Did that make any difference? Not that I've seen. Um, unfortunately, we really are seeing those consistent year after year price increases that exceed inflation. Um, for example, these specialty drugs, the report that we just recently released, we found that the prices for the 180 drugs that we looked at increased at more than three and a half times the rate of inflation in 2020. So we really have not, unfortunately, seen a real change in behavior when it comes to those high prices and then price increases. And some of the other drugs, maybe not the ones that are astronomically high, but very common drugs like uh, inhalers for asthma, that can be like 100 to 150 bucks per unit, from what I understand. And some of them, I think, are even a whole lot more expensive than that. Yes, we see some high prices among just non-specialty brand drugs as well. Um, we track the prices of those products as well and found that on average the price for one brand name drug used on a chronic basis is around $6,600 per year. So that's still a substantial cost um, for people who are facing costs for other important things like food and rent. Talking with Lee Purvis from AARP, uh, anything else you want to add on this? I think the most important thing for a lot of people to keep in mind is that this really is an issue that affects everyone. You're either paying as a patient at the pharmacy counter or you're paying for your health insurance premiums and other cost sharing, or you're paying as a taxpayer because public programs like Medicare and Medicaid pay for prescription drugs. So this really is an issue that affects absolutely everyone, regardless of whether you're taking a prescription drug yourself. And these days, too, with, uh, you know, the sort of the uncertainty in the economy and the job market, folks who are not old enough for Medicare, who may be leaving the workforce and having to get insurance on their own until they hit 65, these are really vital issues. Absolutely. And unfortunately, you know, if you are facing a situation where you can't afford your prescription drugs, that can lead to negative health impacts and higher health care costs down the road. So it's really important to make sure that these drugs are affordable for the people who need them. If somebody does not have insurance, if they're caught between jobs or something and they're diagnosed with cancer and they need one of these drugs, do they not get them because they can't afford them and they have no insurance? We have, unfortunately, heard and seen research uh, about patients who are choosing to walk away from the prescription drugs they need, even for potentially lethal conditions like cancer. And that's why AARP has been so engaged on this issue, because we don't think anyone should have to face those kind of choices. In a situation like that, you know, maybe they haven't applied for Medicaid or, you know, whatever. Does the government step in and help folks that are like that if they, if they push the issue that they need the drugs? A lot of times we find that patients are actually appealing to the drug companies themselves. A lot of them have patient assistance programs that will give you access to their products uh, at a much lower price or even for free if you can qualify. But the reality is there are some people who are just choosing to go without. Too stressful to even deal with, right? You're already uh, potentially dying of, of a horrible disease, and then that just adds to the stress on top of it. As I said before, that really is not a situation we think that anyone should find themselves in, which is why we're so committed to trying to find a way to bring those prices down. Lee, where can folks find out more information online? People who want to learn more about our report or this issue can go to aerp.org slash rxpricewatch. Okay, Lee Purvis, Director of Healthcare Costs and Access for AARP. Thanks for the information today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. 
This has been Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan. Heard each Sunday morning at 6 on WBNS AM, that's 1460 ESPN Columbus, and Sunday morning at 7 on WBNS FM. Sports Radio 97.1 The Fan. Join us again next Sunday for Columbus Perspective.